Well, if you were to Google how to be happy, you would find that there are actually almost five billion entries just on that alone. Tons and tons of articles and books that will give you the secret to true contentment. But one of the titles that I thought was most intriguing was this one. 10 Scientifically Proven Ways to Be Incredibly Happy. And here's the tagline on Google to suck you in. Try one, try them all, they work. Science says so. Well, if science says so, then we're just going to run over there and do it, right? Well, let's listen to these. 10 scientifically proven ways to be incredibly happy. Number one, exercise. Seven minutes could be enough. I was like, huh, I'm happy already. Seven minutes could be enough? You did it. You succeeded. I'm incredibly happy. Sleep more. You'll be less sensitive to negative emotions. What they're really saying is, sleep more and you won't be so crabby. And you know, a lot of us try to sleep more. Yeah, you know, it just doesn't happen. Number three, spend more time with friends and family. Money can't buy you happiness. Okay, good. Number four, get outside more. It says, happiness is maximized at 57 degrees. Okay, now, that was like 45 minutes ago for about a minute. So I guess you've missed your chance today. <laughs> and if you live in Chicago or Palm Desert, you're really out of luck. Number five was help others. 100 hours a year is the magic number. Not 99, not 101, 100 hours helping others. Number six, practice smiling. Reduce pain, improves mood, and you think better. Great. Number seven, plan a trip. It helps even if you don't actually take one. Okay, now I have a bone to pick with that one. <laughs> How many vacations were planned this year? Did it make you happy to plan it when you couldn't go? No. <laughs> Number eight is meditate. It will rewire your brain for happiness. And what they mean is empty your mind. That has never made me happy. Um, number nine is move closer to work because a short commute is worth more than a big house. Okay. And number 10, they must have been at our retreat because it says practice gratitude. It increases happiness and satisfaction. Okay, now I'm not saying that none of that will work. Of course it will for a time. But we know that the Bible teaches us that the only way to have true and lasting happiness and to be incredibly happy is to be right with your creator and to have your sin problem taken care of. And in 1 John 1, 1 to 4, the very first lesson this year, John said, I'm writing to you so that you can have a relationship with God and with each other. And he says, if you have a relationship with God and each other, he told us our joy would be made complete. He revisits that phrase again this week, remember? He talks about how our joy is going to be made complete. In fact, it's going to be the umbrella over the whole thing. But today he's going to tell us that the secret of our joy being made complete are the ladies sitting right next to you. They are the key to your happiness. He's going to want you to prioritize these relationships over everything else in your life. They are your most treasured possession beyond God and your family. This is it. These ladies that you're sharing tables with right now are the key to being incredibly happy. So today we're going to look at seven, yes, there's a backside to your worksheet today, God's seven surefire ways for us to be incredibly happy. And since there's seven, I better get going. The first one is found in 2 John 12. It says, this is our passage, though I have much to write to you, 
I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face that our joy may be complete. John had a lot to tell them. He had some instructions to give them, and he's reminding them that we need to find joy in our sisters by, number one, learning from them. Learning from them. John is writing them a letter about important things. He's not just shooting the breeze with them and talking about nothing. No, he's speaking for God into their lives, and that's what we need to do with our sisters as well. We need to speak God's words into their lives. We need to help them grow spiritually every chance we get. And that's what John did here. He wrote only a little bit at this point, but he told them to hang on to the truth and reject anybody who was pulling them away from it, right? It was almost like he was sending them a quick text or email, like you might do if you're driving to church and you found that there was an accident on your way, and you texted your 16-year-old who's driving to school, and you said, don't come this way. There's danger. Go around another way. It's that quick warning that John is giving them in this letter. And we understand John's desire to warn people, right? It's what Geppetto did when he found out that Pinocchio skipped school, right? He's playing hooky, and he runs over there to try to say, stop, what, what, what were you doing? He didn't want him hanging out with the wrong people. Sadly, Geppetto got there too late. John does not want us to get there too late. He wants us to learn from one another all the time. And hopefully, you can see how satisfying it is to learn from your sisters already. You have heard many a lesson from this stage, and it's been an amazing year in first and second and soon to be third John. But I want you to think beyond retreat and women's Bible study. Um, although I do appreciate and do, not, do you not have the same appreciation when you pull your pink give thanks in all circumstances sweatshirt out of your closet and you say, I cannot complain today? Do you not appreciate Stephanie Schwartz, right? That reminder has made such a difference, right? But I want you to think beyond this stage to all the learning that you can have with each other. Now, it obviously can happen with your kids, but it also can happen at things like partners, small group. Even small group today, you're going to learn from each other. Someone's going to say a nugget that's going to make you go, oh, I should be doing that in my prayer life too, or oh, I didn't even realize that was a sin. I guess I better stop doing that. You're going to learn from each other all the time. Even hanging out at the park and talking about your quiet time or your parenting challenges. Proverbs 27:17 says something very important. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And oh, how important it is for us to tell each other what God thinks. We're like sandpaper to each other. We have rough edges, and we need the sandpaper of our sisters to help us all throughout our week, all throughout our month, which is why I think COVID, sadly, was a brilliant strategy of the enemy. It was the first time, really, ever in our lives that he got the church separated from one another. He kept us apart from each other. We no longer had that sandpaper because we weren't lingering before and after HFG. We weren't standing by the donut table. We weren't hanging out together and talking about things. We weren't sharing our struggles. We weren't talking about evangelistic opportunities we'd had. And we weren't spurring each other on because of that. And even though we tried really hard, we lost ground for a time. Well, where do we start all this learning that we need to do? Obviously, first of all, stuff like women's Bible study and small group, which is great. You're already here. How about HFG? How about Thrive? How about partners? How about a ministry post? 
If you already have those things, that's great. You're on the right track. If you don't, get those things put in your life. Get with each other more times during the week. But there's more to it than that. We also need to seize the opportunity while we're there, okay? When you're already with Christians, which you will be, not just at small group, but even as you're walking to the parking lot, okay? What are you talking about? What color tier we're in? What you don't like about our state? How you hate wearing masks? Or could we seize those opportunities to talk about things like our prayer life, or how to help a hurting friend, or how to fight anxiety, or how to be a better cheerleader for your husband? Just seize the opportunities. You're already together to talk about things, to encourage your, each other, to nudge each other, and yes, even to push each other. And I have a specific suggestion for you on this one. Those are a bunch of generics, but a specific suggestion that I literally just embraced this last year. I call it a DBR thread, where myself and two friends, we just get together on text to talk about the DBR, which we're already doing. We're already reading, so we just comment to each other. We talk about what we learned that day, um, maybe something we want to worship God for, maybe something we're praying about, maybe something we need to confess. And all this is is three trusted friends sharing their raw thoughts as they live the Christian life together. Okay, it's not ready for publication. I said they're trusted friends. They're not people who are going to share what you're saying, but we're just learning together, a very simple way to do it. I promise you, this is now, I consider the backbone of my friendship. I have never felt closer to these two gals than I do today, and I've been friends with them for years. There's great joy in learning together. All right, back to 2 John 12 and 13. Let's go to number two. It says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This time we're going to find that we should get joy from our sisters by being with them. This is the big obvious application from this passage. Get joy by being with them. He wrote these people an important but brief letter, but he actually tells them it's brief because I'm going to come to you. I want to have face-to-face -face time with you. I want to have a closeness and an intimacy with you. And we know that's the most effective way to communicate, right? I mean, we get it because you can see the person's responses. They can ask questions. There's um, not the same risk of miscommunication when you're talking to someone face to face. You can see if they're confused or if they're happy or they're really distressed by what you just said. We also know that it's a great advantage to speak face to face because, frankly, it's more fun. It's more fulfilling. It does make us happier and it's more satisfying to talk to people face to face. It's how we're wired. And John adds this bit of warmth in verse 13 when he references this church. He's sending greetings from the church where he's ministering right at that point in time. And we get that because sister churches find joy just knowing that each other's out there, kids of the king, doing their thing in another location. It's why you feel that warmth about maybe Compass HB or Tustin or Treasure Valley or now Hill Country. There's a warmth that comes from sharing life with other kids of the king, even if we're not in the same geographic location. Now, we all get how important human contact is. If you did not get that before the last 12 months, you get it now, right? I mean, think about what do we do with people when criminals, when we want to punish them? 
we send them to solitary confinement because that's the worst punishment of all, having no human contact. We get it. Two are better than one. It's not good for man to be alone. God made us to enjoy people. And if we didn't get it before, we get it now because we've suffered great losses this year by not being together in person with our brothers and sisters. I know it's hard to think back through the last 12 months and the fog, but I want you to think back to a year ago. A year ago last week, the whole world shut down. Friday the 13th, March 2020. By Monday, the lines at the grocery store were out the door and around the block for the first time since the Great Depression. We'd never seen anything like it. And even though we joke about it, there was literally no toilet paper, paper towels, or antibacterial products, and you were actually wondering what you were going to do when your Kleenex boxes ran out. They said we would be apart for two weeks. Do you remember that? It's like, we're hoping to be open for Easter, right? We were all hoping two weeks, two weeks, maybe three. I think Easter was three. It was a lot longer than that, right? And for the first time in forever, the church went dark. And every single in-person event that you had on your calendar suddenly was canceled. School, college kids came home. Okay, that was one silver lining. Movie theaters closed, sports arenas, and we stayed home behind closed doors, sheltering just us. And we spent more time listening to reports on the news or CDC personnel than we spent with our Christian influences. It was flooding into our brains. I don't know if you remember this, but they told us every single one of us was going to get this horrific virus and tens of thousands of us were going to die, including many people that you knew and loved. And they made us afraid of each other, afraid of the women in this room. And we stayed apart for weeks and months because of it. Pastor Mike rushed to our computer screens, of course, quickly, telling us God's in charge, you need to pray, and you need to use all your data by connecting with each other through things like texting and FaceTiming and that weird app called Zoom that he walked us through the steps of how to sign up for it so we could connect. And it was just today, this day today, last year, that he began filming the morning devotionals and the evening Bible studies. And he did that because we didn't have this. We were isolated and alone in our with our only family behind closed doors, not for two weeks, but for three and a half months. Do you remember how disconcerting that was? Never to see another person, except when you rushed to the grocery store as quick as you can and got out of there for the essential services. Oh, we tried to connect. We used our texting, we used our emailing, our FaceTiming, and our Zoom faithfully. We really tried, but it wasn't the same to not have face-to-face. And if you have college kids who have gone away, you get this. You, you, you love to FaceTime with them once a week, which was Mike's rule. We give you money for college, you FaceTime your mother once a week. Seemed like a fair deal. But it wasn't the same as when he came home for break. Because I can tell you that no technology, no matter how wonderful, replaces face-to-face. Paul understood that when he wrote 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 20. It was in your homework. He said, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. 
because we wanted to come to you. And I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. And we felt profound loss. But now I want you to think of another day. I want you to remember the day you first saw your Christian brothers and sisters face to face. Maybe it was the first in-person HFG you had. Maybe it was a wanna drive through graduation ceremony that went all across this campus, car after car after car. Maybe it was the first courtyard service we had June 27th, three and a half months after we closed. For me, it was a goodbye party, a compass spontaneous goodbye party for a family who moved back east. Raise your hand if you were at that. Hundreds of us were in a parking lot of the DMV in Laguna Hills. And I can tell you, it was like, party, party. We thought it was Christmas morning, hundreds of us. And almost everybody stayed in their cars with their windows down, talking through car windows. But a few of us risk takers, we frolicked about the parking lot <laughs> and talked to people, you know, from a distance, how's it going? I, we, we were just checking in, how's it going? How, how's your family? You still have a job? What, how about your kids, right? We were so happy just to talk to each other. Our grins were ear to ear, laughter was infectious, and we were in this cruddy old parking lot. We had no order of service, we had no worship, we had no teaching, no lesson, no games. We just had the joy of being together. Remember what it felt like to be back with people again, face to face. I imagine that's what the first day in the New Jerusalem is gonna be like. So for this one, I just want to invite you to savor the time you have with each other, and do it more and more. Now, obviously, some people are, have different issues about this. I want you to love your sisters. I want you to be kind to your sisters. I want you to be sensitive to your sisters. And I want you to be with them as much as they will let you, in whatever way they will let you. Face-to-face, -face, social distancing, outside in a park, masks, do whatever it takes. We don't want one more week to go by where an ember is pulled away from the fire and cold and alone. Do whatever they need you to do to have as much time with your sisters as possible. And I promise you it'll bring you great joy. Before we leave 2 John, there is one more way. It's not in your teaching today, but if you look back at 2 John 4, you'll see their third one. It says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. It's going to come up in 3 John 4 as well. But for this one, point number three, we need to find joy in your sisters by watching their obedience, by watching their obedience. John says that we could be incredibly happy just by seeing other people follow Christ and do what he says. And we know it's true. We've had it happen with our kids. We've had it happen when we led Awana, and we've seen that you know, child, learn that Bible verse. We've seen it with our partners when they've, they've worked so hard and they finally know the books of the Bible. And we, we, we have that joy as we've invested in them. We've also seen it when we've helped a friend fight temptation and they've overcome it, right? Those moments of joy. And your joy will expand based on the kind of investment and love you've poured into the person. The more investment you've poured into them, and they see that victory, the more excitement, enthusiasm, joy, and thanksgiving is gonna happen in your heart. Paul knew that. He said in 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, and 9, he says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy 
that we feel for your sake before our God. Now, in my job in ministry and gifting, God has allowed me to pour into women all the time. So I get the joy of seeing women obey Christ, well, probably on a weekly basis. But it means that I'm always surrounded by women who are facing challenges, whether that's infertility, whether that's loss of a relationship, whether that's marital problems, whether that's financial crisis, whether that's death, whether that's rebellious children, whatever it is, um, God has had these women cross my path. And I get the chance to, yes, comfort them and be sympathetic with whatever it is, their horrible thing they're going through, but I also get to do something I call stake the tree. Now, we know what stake trees are like because we have them all over Orange County, especially South Orange County. We are not blessed with those beautiful streets of mature trees lining them up in Pasadena or Glendale, right? We have tons, I bet you we'll see 40 of them today, of staked trees all over South County. Those landscapers are out there staking trees, and what they do is they put the little tree and they put the stakes around and they wrap it in plastic. But why do they do that? They do that so that tree, when the storms come, when the strong winds like we had yesterday, when that happens, that that tree can remain steadfast, straight and tall, and grow properly, and not only survive, but thrive. Well, I often get the chance to come and comfort these women in their troubles, but I also get to stake their tree. I get to encourage them to look to our God who is sovereign in all things and to walk through whatever it is that they're facing, hopefully, Lord willing, without regret. Because God is going to bring them through it. There will be an end. I always promise them there will be an end. I don't know when that end will be, but there will be an end and God will lead you through. And you want to walk out the other side with boldness and gratitude and not embarrassment and being ashamed. So I try to help people, encourage them, and I stake their tree. I do things like praying with them, praying for them, sending them verses, checking in with them, and I can tell you, when the moment comes when they share they had some moment of victory, I did not blow up at this person. <laughs> I had a good quiet time today. You know what happens? We rejoice. We have a little party. Woohoo! We have a little party. Because they obeyed God, even though it was hard. And we rejoice together. Now, sadly, of course, that doesn't happen every single time. Every text isn't a moment of woohoo, answer to prayer. No. But if you don't swing the bat, you're never going to hit the ball. And if you don't invest in helping people obey Christ, you're never going to have the joy of seeing them do it. To apply this one, I've got to be honest with you, it's messy. It's costly. You've got to get your hands dirty in people's life and sometimes in their guck of their life. But I promise you, the joy of seeing them do the right thing will far surpass any price tag that you might have paid, any sacrifice that you might have made. And it doesn't have to be crisis. I mean, this is everyday ministry too. This is being a small group leader and helping someone do the right thing. This is, like I said, being an Awana leader or a Thrive leader. This is being a NAVMO leader or a woman in faith leader as well. It's everyday ministry. It could be you just helping your friend do the right thing. If you invest in people regularly, I promise you, whether they take baby steps or giant leaps, you're going to be excited when you see them be obedient to Christ.
Okay, time to venture out of 2 John. I'd like you to turn to the book of Acts, and you're gonna have to flip your page over, I think, for this one. Go to the book of Acts in chapter 20. We're gonna see our next finding joy task. In Acts 20, the apostle Paul is ending his third missionary journey, and he has now made his way to a little meeting with the pastors in Ephesus, where he's saying goodbye to them. This is the end of Acts 20. He's gonna talk with the Ephesian leaders about the things that they've done in the three years he spent with them, the things that Paul taught them, the way he instructed them, the way he warned them. And then he makes a statement about how when he was with them, he made it a practice to pay his own way, for lack of a better way of saying it. He worked so that he could have his own money to be able to share with others. And in Acts 20, 33 to 35, he says this, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, or I didn't want your stuff or your money. He says, verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands, that's talking about his hands, ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And from Paul's example here, we realize that another way to find joy in our sisters is to give to them materially. Or point number four, find joy in your sisters by being generous to them, by being generous to them. Paul didn't want their support. Not that it would have been wrong for him to take payment for being a preacher, a counselor, a shepherd to them. It would have been perfectly fine, and he did that at other times. But in Ephesus, for some reason, he didn't. He laid down an example for them of working hard, having a paycheck, taking his money out of his own pocket and giving it to help others. Later, he would write them in Ephesians 4.28, he would write them these words, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And in 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul tells people like us, if you have a, a, a meal in your refrigerator right now or another pair of clothes, set of clothes in your closet, he's talking to us, okay? Anybody here got another set of clothes in your closet? Okay. Here he's talking to us and he says this, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. But in our passage, Acts 20, 35, he said, it is more blessed or it will make us happier to give than to receive. And I hope you've actually had this experience. Obviously, I know you have if you're a wife, a mom, a sister, a friend. But for some of us, our generosity has only made it to our front door. We've never pushed ourselves to go beyond that. And while I'm happy that you're generous with your family and friends, there is so much joy and help that you could be spreading around with whatever it is that you have. I'm not talking costly gifts. I'm just talking kind and loving ones. Little things. I got the chance to share, have this experience of giving, the joy of giving, when I got released from my guest room quarantine. If you were at retreat, you remember I got stuck inside. For Actually, it's always funny to me how we get stuck inside when we don't get COVID for longer than the one who has COVID. That makes no sense to me. But um, science says it, so no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I was stuck for 14 days, and I'm texting my little quarantine buddies. So the first thing I did in those first couple days was I went around, and I got everybody's lunch order, and I made a little circuit. Mission Viejo, Ladera, San Juan. I was taking lunch 
and opening the door and we're standing, okay, I don't want to get it, all right, so here's your lunch, but we would stand there and visit for just a couple minutes. I got the chance to give, and I got great joy from it. Now, you guys have blessed our family in a thousand different ways, and we are constantly receiving gifts of your generosity, and it, I wish I could show you and, and bottle up the joy that you give our family. It happens all the time, and of course, when Mike got COVID, we got lots of that joy spread our way. We got lemon bars, we got cookies, we got vitamins, we got nachos, we got Uber Eats cards, but one thing we got that brought the most joy to our life was a loaf of homemade sourdough bread. And I tell you that because I want to show you that being generous doesn't have to be fancy or expensive. That was the best thing. I think that's the best loaf of bread I've ever had. And, uh, and it wasn't the first time, because when we were locked down for those three and a half months, one incredibly kind gentleman from our church showed up at my door, my gate, every single week with loaves and loaves of bread from local bakeries. He wanted to make sure we had bread, and we had many a tasty grilled cheese sandwich. Being generous doesn't have to be fancy. In fact, I have a very sweet friend who is so generous with me. She's generous with her kind words, and she's generous with her stuff. And she constantly, for no reason at all, is bringing me little tiny gifts, candles, fixings for dinner, even at retreat. She brought me a little tiny gift bag with some sweets, fruity sweets and chocolate sweets, and a little note just to spur me on when I was working that weekend at retreat. Um, and let me just give you a little warning here. Please don't be someone who um, resists the gifts of others. Um, if you're the kind of gal that when you get something, you just can't say, thank you. That's so awesome. Thank you. Um, let me just give you a little nudge. Just say thank you. Because when you resist, no, no, you can't give me any sourdough bread, right? No, no, give it to somebody else, right? Um, or you start trying to figure out how you're going to reciprocate. Well, next time, I'll make sure I make you sourdough bread. Okay, you have just stolen whatever joy that sister was trying to experience in giving you something. Just say thank you. And I'm not saying this because I want you to start, you know, giving my family all this stuff. I, that's great, and I would not turn away a loaf of sourdough bread, of course. But I'm saying this because I want you to do this for each other. These women will get their socks knocked off by your kindness and generosity if you just spread it around. Great joy is given by being generous. And it doesn't take a lot. I mean, you're at the grocery store anyway for your family. Buy two boxes of cookies instead of one. Or you're going to make a loaf of bread, make a second, right? It's so simple. How about you're driving through Cane's, and when you buy lunch, you get a gift card. You throw it in an envelope, and you say, thinking of you, have a nice lunch, and you stick it with a stamp, and you, you send it off. Sit someone's kids, weed their garden, run their errands. If you see them out at date night, hey, and you're able, take care of their check. Be generous, and I promise you, you will have more joy in the giving than the receiving. Well, there's another great one, and this one is found in the book of Philippians. If you'd like to turn there with me, chapter 1, we know that Paul the Apostle was a great servant, but he did not serve alone. In Philippians 1, 3 to 5, he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, Philippians, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
Paul is happy because the Philippians partnered or teamed up with him to serve. For this next one, I want you to find joy in your sisters by teaming together. That's number five, teaming together. Paul was just one man. He was very gifted, but he was just one man, and he could only do so much alone. This is number five, teaming together. Um, in Colossians 4, you did it in your homework, but uh, in that passage, it talked about all of Paul's friends and all the guys that went around with him and traveled with him. I call them Paul's pals, you know, and it has all this list of all these different people, which we like to skip over, but think about having your name in the Bible. Don't skip those. Those people are important. So they're serving with him, and I want you to skim your memory banks of your study of the New Testament and think about what these guys did. They did things like transporting letters. They taught truth. They baptized people. They collected and distributed funds. They strengthened Christians. They wrestled in prayer for people. They even went to jail in order to, to defend Paul and have him not go. They traveled with Paul. They stitched him up. And one of them even searched the entire prison system to find an anonymous prisoner and to sit next to him in jail when he found the Apostle Paul. That's the kind of guy the, guys these were. They teamed up with him. And the Philippians, just think about what they must have done, the one that Paul wrote this to. They did things like sharing the gospel with people, bringing crowds in so Paul could preach to them. They, I'm sure they counseled people. I'm sure they set up whatever the platform was that Paul preached from. I'm sure they prepared meals and set up lamps so that they could teach into the night. They did all kinds of things. And the Philippians actually were told in the book of Philippians that they are the one church that supported Paul financially, which we know is different than Ephesus, but they did that too. These men and women teamed up with Paul. Now, teaming up reminds me of the celebration that we just had when CBI when we had the ribbon cutting a couple weeks ago, and I know that many of you were there. But I want to remind you of the team that God brought to do that work. It wasn't something that you know, we could do by ourselves. But God, first of all, brought a pastor who was gifted and passionate about Christian higher education. And God called Pastor Mark Kelly back to our team so that he could be that man. Then he brought a CFO to help us figure out how to finance it, how to, to make it happen with all the numbers and the figures and to make sure we got city approval. And he called Rick Talcott to the table. Then we had to have somebody to plan, what do we do with those walls and that roof and design something that is now that beautiful space and God brought Steve Camp to do that. And then we needed someone to take the plans that Steve Camp came up with and actually come up with the materials and the subcontractors and the schedule to get all of that worked out. And he brought Sam Schaefer to manage all of those things. And then, of course, we need boots on the ground. We need someone to make sure that the cement got poured and actually hang the doors and wire the place up, and he brought Trevor Kroon to do that. It was a whole team of people. And he brought a lot of you, too, because you got behind the vision of your pastor, and you prayed, and you gave, and you were part of the team. And we got to celebrate and have great joy at the establishment of the Compass Bible Institute because we teamed up to do a job that no one could do by themselves. There's great joy in teaming up. Now, we may not have that opportunity, but there's a team you can join here. It was discussed even this morning. Do you have a ministry post? Do you have a place that you serve week in and week out? If you do, that's great. Row alongside your brothers and sisters for Christ. Maybe even 
you know, encourage and help those brothers and sisters of Christ around you that are rowing next to you. We need to work together to reach people for Christ, to teach them to be like Christ, and to train them to serve Christ. And there is great joy in teaming up. Our next path to true happiness is found in the very tiny book of Philemon. You have to look a little harder for this one, but if you go write a few books, there's one page, maybe not even a whole page in your Bible, the book of Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy and an influential man in Colossae who had been brought to Christ um, by the Apostle Paul and immediately began hosting a church in his home in Colossae. And in verse 7 of the book that's named for him, he did not write it, Paul wrote it to him, but this book is named for him in verse 7, it says this. This is Paul talking to this man, Philemon. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, Philemon, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Or you have given people rest, Philemon. He says, hearing about you serving brings me joy. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. I am seeing you serve, and I get happy. And from that, we see point number six, find joy in your sisters by seeing their service. Seeing their service. Now, Paul was far away here. He was actually hundreds of miles away from Colossae, where Philemon was. He was hundreds of miles away in a prison cell in Rome. And he was writing to his convert and his disciple Philemon, who had probably become a Christian through Paul's time in Ephesus, because we know from the book of Colossians that he didn't actually ever make it to Colossae in person and have that face-to-face time. Paul is writing his friend and convert Philemon to ask him for a favor. Because see, Philemon's slave, a guy named Onesimus, had run away and actually stolen from Philemon, this wealthy man. And when he did that, he ran away to the biggest city he could find, which was the city of Rome, probably to get lost there. Onesimus, the runaway slave. But you know how you can't run from God? And God makes sure to find him in Rome. And he ends up crossing paths with the Apostle Paul. And he gets saved. And Paul befriends him. And Onesimus tells Paul his whole story. Well, you know, sometimes you get that piece of information from someone and then you have to do something about it, right? So Paul finds out this guy's a runaway slave. Well, I can't let that stand. You're a Christian. We're going to have to make this right. So even though he loved Onesimus, he knew that he had to send him back to his old friend and slave owner, rightful owner of Onesimus. And when you imagine it, think about it. Onesimus is actually carrying this letter to Philemon back in Colossae. And in this letter, Paul is appealing to his friend, Philemon, and asking him for mercy for Onesimus. He'd actually like Onesimus to help him in Rome and stay with him and be a helper to him while he's in prison. But he's asking Philemon to show him mercy. Now, Philemon already had an amazing reputation. You saw it in verse 7, for refreshing the saints. He was doing a great service to the church. He was even providing them with a place to meet. But now Paul's going to ask him for some more service. And this is tougher. He's going to ask him to forgive this man, this runaway slave. And he's going to ask him to set him free to come back and serve him in Rome. And to forget what's happened. And instead of treating him like a slave or a criminal, but to treat him like a brother 
This was some sacrificial service he's going to ask of Philemon. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happens. We don't know. But because we know the reputation of Philemon and the servant that he was, and because we know that when his good friend, the Apostle Paul, asked him a favor, this obedient Christian probably did it, we're assuming that Onesimus was forgiven and probably even sent back to Paul. Well, Paul had lots of opportunities to train up leaders like Philemon. We know their names, Timothy, Titus, Silas. But there were so many more that he trained up to do ministry. And I hope you've had that experience too. Even if it was just your kids here and there, where you teach them to pour milk, and then all of a sudden you see them doing it for their little sibling, okay? I hope you get to see it in bigger ways too, though. I had this experience once when um, Mike and I were out with a couple, and we were out to dinner at a restaurant, and we decided that this dinner needed to extend a little bit, so we texted our three, you know, probably junior high around age kids, and uh, maybe upper elementary, and we texted them and we said, we're bringing people home. <laughs> Put the dishes in the dishwasher, walk around the downstairs to pick up the toys, and check the bathroom. That was my text to them, right? When we got home 15 minutes later, not only was the downstairs immaculate, but there was candles burning, there was chocolate chip cookies in the oven, and there were water bottles set out on the coffee, room, coffee table in the living room. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you, that was a proud mom moment. But I'll tell you that they learned to do this because we had people in our home all the time. And we always enlisted them to be part of the setup or the cleanup. This was normal to them. Not only did they see us do it, but they actually had a part in it, and that's how they learned. So it wasn't just me, you know, teaching my kids. It was me and my husband training disciples to serve Christ. That made it an even more proud moment. And uh, I don't want you to just relegate this duty to your kids, although if you have children at home, I would say right now, we call them arrows, and we think that's such a cool Christian thing, but you do realize arrows are meant to penetrate. They're not decorations. An arrow's entire purpose is to penetrate the bullseye, to be effective for Christ in this world. You have to teach them to be servants. You can't just have fun with them. You have to train up people to love the church, to love the people in the church, to love God, to love you all. You have to train them to do that. It doesn't happen accidentally. So I make no apology that we, yes, required our kids to be in every Christmas musical. And we required them to be in Awana LIT. And we required them to be in train and in student ministers. Even though they played high school sports, they took all the AP classes. Yeah, we required it. Because even before we were, they were Christians, we wanted to train them to serve. You know, the Bible is very clear. Jesus came to serve and not be served. So if we want our kids to be Christ-like, they have to be like that. And it starts today, not when they're 12. I don't care how old your kids are. It starts today. But don't relegate it just to your kids, okay? Do this in other people's lives as well. Expect everyone of every age, if you're a follower of Christ, we expect you to serve. Now, you, the way you serve may be totally different than someone in a different stage of life. 
I was just having this conversation with some young moms the other day. I have the freedom to serve now in ways that I couldn't when they were younger, but I was still serving when my kids were younger. And maybe some of you, I, I can't do as much, I'm older. You can do a lot. There is so much discipling, and there's so much mentoring, there's so much praying, there's so much serving you could do, even in, from your home. Having people in your home and getting to know these women and making a difference in their lives. Or children, I mean, we got Kids Bible Club. A million different ways you could serve. So we expect people to serve no matter what your age or stage of life. We should expect it from each other. So settle into a ministry post and then recruit others to be with you or to go to other ministry posts and other needs. Jesus came, as I said, to serve. There is great joy in serving. We need to find that joy in our sisters by seeing them serve. For our last finding your joy task, I'm going to ask you to go to Philippians 2. I know we've already been in Philippians, but we're going back. Philippians 2, in verses 1 and 2, we see a surefire path to happiness, incredible happiness. It says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, which sounds like 2 John 12, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We need to find joy in our sisters, number seven, like by being united in Christ. By being united in Christ. Paul says, if you got any good stuff from being a Christian, which of course we do, our response should be to get along with our siblings. We can't be out there, you know, looking out for number one, shining everybody else on, having our own way after all the good stuff God has given us. Instead, we need to make him happy by doing what this says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord. To put this in a word, it's like-mindedness. Like-mindedness, which, wow, this year... <laughs> That concept has been blown apart, even in the church. Like-mindedness. It means valuing the same stuff and having the same purpose. We're not clones. We're not walking in lockstep with each other. But we're using whatever gifts and responsibilities that God has given us to cooperate with one another for his purposes. Now, being united with Christ reminds me of my days in uh, marching band. I know, confession time. I was in marching band. Don't judge. Uh, I was actually in a really big and powerful marching band, uh, 200 people in our marching band. Uh, even my man was in it. He was in the first rank. He was a cool trombone player. I, on the other hand, was a lowly flute player in the last rank, 20 rows from him. And we didn't know each other. And uh, because I was a woodwind instrument, I wasn't really that important to the marching band. So instead of actually playing, uh, we were the ones who got to make all the cool designs on the field at halftime. For those of you who don't like football but went to halftime or went to football games, you actually appreciated us out there making little designs on the field, didn't you? Yes, I see nodding heads. Good. Well, I have to say, I, I only lasted in band one year. The really high-waisted black uniform, it just, 
Didn't cut it for me. So I moved on to drill team, and this time I was grouped with 100 gals who also got to make those halftime pictures on the field and do routines to the music that my dutiful future boyfriend was playing out there. I will never forget one particular halftime show. It was the favorite every year because it was homecoming, and uh, it was when the queen got crowned, right? And she got this big bouquet of roses. So our band director liked to have us play every year, Everything's Coming Up Roses. And he, wow, you just got to respect a guy like this. He designed um, a big picture for us to make on the field, 100 girls. He designed a gigantic rose, which was probably 40 yards across with 100 girls. And what he did was he made us... Um, stand in concentric circles, like three or four concentric circles, one bigger than the other. And he taught us to march in the opposite direction from each other. If one ring was clockwise, the other was counterclockwise, and the next was clockwise, and the other was counterclockwise. And every time the music changed on the Everything's Coming Up Roses, we had big yellow pom-poms, and he would have us go, you know, um, down and then back up again every time the music changed. So even though I can't do many things I did 40 years ago, I can do this. So this is what he would have us do. We would go, Okay. So because of that, we made this big blooming yellow rose out there in the center of the football field. And it was the one time that everyone oohed and awed over the halftime show, right? But I can tell you the only way that we could possibly have pulled that off is if everybody was following the band director. Everyone was working united under one guy. You know, there was over 300 people out there on the field. There was the teacher's aides, there was the band, there was the drum majors, there was us drill team girls. We all had to do different jobs, but we all had to make that band director's vision a reality by listening to him. We did have different jobs. I was supposed to march in a circle, back and forth, back and forth. The drum majors, they were doing things like whistling and yelling commands and conducting the music, by the way. And then there was the musicians, who they played the notes that were written for them. There was no improv. Right? There was no, I, I couldn't say, well, I think that we should skip instead of march. Um, nor could I say, I don't like that girl, I'm not marching anywhere near her, get out. Right? I couldn't do any of that. I had to be united under the band director and see his vision happened. Well, of course, that's exactly what you and I need to do when it comes to our sisters. We need to follow our leader. We need to do his instructions, which means we need to let everything else go. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what she gets to do. Just do what God says to do and let everything else go. Unless, of course, it violates Scripture. Okay, then you can go another way. But other than that, we need to cooperate with one another, with our siblings, and see Christ's dream come true and be united under him. That is where we will find the greatest joy. In Marie Kondo's best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, 
which many of you know. She even has a Netflix series now. I know she's whacked, and I'm not telling you to follow her and be her disciple. But her whole premise with organizing and decluttering your life is to ask one question. Some of you know the question. The question is, when you're decluttering your life, does it spark joy? Okay? If it sparks joy, what are you supposed to do? Keep it. If it doesn't spark joy, you're supposed to let it go, give it away, throw it away, right? Ladies, I'm here to tell you, it's the women all around you right here that spark joy. You need to keep them. You need to hold on to them with both hands and never let them go. And you need to busy yourself doing these seven things that we just talked about today. And I promise you, when you do that, you will be incredibly happy. Let's pray. Dear God, I just want to thank you for the gift of sisters. As much as we wish that you were here on earth with us right now, Jesus, we understand that there are other responsibilities that you have and that you've left us the Holy Spirit and you've not left us alone. But we do want to thank you, God, for the gift of each other and the preciousness that comes from having friends, sisters, loved ones, to come around us in difficulty, in sorrow, but also in great joy. And we do thank you that our days of sheltering behind closed doors with only our nuclear family are over. Thank you so much, God. Thank you for us even being here in person now. And thank you for that moment that I hope we all thought of when we had been sheltering for three and a half months and we got to actually see people our Christian brothers and sisters again, and what that felt like, and how we were jumping up and down. We were so excited. Thank you so much for the joy of our sisters. I do pray, Lord, that we would, you know, look through these things, and, and that we would make these things a pattern of our lives. These are scriptures where we see the person having joy because they're with God's people. I pray that my sisters here would do these things more and more and I pray that you would give them incredible happiness in it, in the treasure that is their sisters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.